Welcome to History 21, the podcast, a production of the Anoka County Historical Society, sharing the stories and audio journeys from our county's past and present. Welcome to Anoka Podcast. I'm Rebecca. Hello, Sarah. Hello, Rebecca. How are you today? I'm doing pretty good. I'm not at all getting up to shenanigans while you're out of the museum this week. Instead of having your beautiful voice, uh, our amazing friend Brian has been helping me get the podcast ready for everybody this week. Just had to make fun of you guys. This episode all started because I love museum bunny trails. Recently, I've been researching all things Centerville, preparing for a tour this spring at St. Genevieve Cemetery there. Be sure to save the date, June 8th and 22nd. But the research has been taking me all over the museum. One day, I found a small 8x8 spiral-bound book sitting on a shelf among a sea of other family histories, just waiting for researchers. The book doesn't immediately grab your eye. It's small and hides between all the larger books and three-ring binders, but I pulled it out and discovered it contains a treasure trove of stories from Burton Dupree and Centerville. I was excited to be able to share them on the tour until I realized he wasn't buried at St. Jen's. Instead, we will be talking about his big brother Mel on the tour, but I was so sad that I wasn't going to be able to share these stories. And that's how this episode was born, out of my desperation for being able to share this with everybody out there. Burton was born in 1923 in Centerville to a family with deep French-Canadian roots. He and his four siblings helped his father and mother on their 100-acre farm. In 1941, Burton graduated from White Bear Lake High School before heading off to serve in World War II. While life after the war brought him to the West Coast and he never lived in Centerville again, he visited and always shared stories of those times growing up here. Years later, his daughter Rebecca described them as glimpses into a past she could hardly believe existed, and she started to fear their loss. She tried writing them down herself because she had heard them so many times, but that lacked her dad's essence. Burton didn't know where to start writing either. He even tried like recording things, it just didn't fit until a quadruple bypass and other health concerns helped him get past his writer's block. With just 18 chapters and 54 pages, Burton shares snapshots of his life in Centerville, his family, and his time during World War II. In her foreword, Rebecca reveals, and I'm going to quote it, Whatever it has taken for Dad to spend the time to write, we are all the greater for it. Our children and our children's children will have a link not only to a bygone era, but also to an honorable man. For me, this compilation is a place where I'll return to often. Just wrapping my tongue around the ebb and flow of its cadence makes me feel connected to you, Dad. Thank you for your generosity. Burton passed away in 2013, 12 years after the compilation of this little book. Unfortunately, there's no recording or oral history at the museum where we can listen to Burton's voice sharing his own stories. Instead, ACHS volunteer Brian came to lend his voice to three of Burton's stories, taking us back to a Centerville long past and his service during World War II as a medic, driver, and finally bartender. 
for the company bar. Okay, here we go. Just some of my childhood chores. When Mel and I were young, Mel being the oldest, worked with Pa more than I did. I helped Ma when she needed help, especially at times when she was sick. It was up to me to do the cooking and cleaning. I even learned to make bread once a week. I got pretty good at it, too, so my cooking experience goes back a long way. I still enjoy it. Canning time was an especially busy time in August. Ma canned tomatoes, 80 to 90 quarts, in addition to chili sauce and ketchup. Sweet corn had to be cooked and stripped off the cob. Cucumbers had to be picked, washed, and put in jars. String beans and beets in a lesser amount. Ma also canned apples, jelly and jams from strawberries, choke cherries, grapes, and cran apples. Prior to the actual canning was going through the cellar and picking out the oldest of whatever was left over from years before, emptying the jars and cleaning them for reuse. We had an unheated porch on the north side of the house, which could have been our canning shed during the summer and the ice box in the winter. The canning was done where we had a three-burner kerosene stove. I can still smell it. I wasn't exempt from the other chores, however. It was my job to haul enough wood in to keep the kitchen stove and the pot belly we had in the living room going. It was a very large wood box, which was inside the house. Being on a farm, there was always enough work for everyone. The season dictated the work that had to be done. In the spring, once it thawed, we had to haul all the horse and cow manure out to the fields and spread it around. Believe me when I say I was in manure up to my knees all spring. Can you even imagine how much manure is accumulated by maybe 10 to 15 cows and three horses over winter? Then comes the plowing, some of which had been plowed the fall before. Disking, dragging, and finally planting. In the summer, it was cultivated corn and potatoes and killing the potato bugs, which was accomplished with a pail of water laced with arsenic of lead and a whisk broom. Each plant was whisked by hand, very effective. I spent a lot of time with Mel cultivating corn and potatoes with one horse in a hand-operated cultivator. I would ride the horse and steer him around, and Mel would handle the cultivator. Harvesting wild hay and alfalfa was hot, hard work. It had to be cut, raked, and finally stacked. Later in the fall, we cut our oats and barley, shocked it, then hauled it near the barn where it was stacked, till the threshing crew came around. Tom had the separator run by a huge Russell steam engine that had unlimited power. He went from farm to farm until it was all done. Some of the bigger farmers didn't stack their oats, so when threshing time came around, it had to be hauled in the separator with horse-drawn hay racks. This required help from neighbors who usually furnished a team and wagon. 
If you helped one farmer, he generally reciprocated when the time came. Cecil Lamont was Pa's helper and vice versa. We always furnished a team. We only had one team plus a third horse and sometimes two or three hands when we filled a silo. That was a job that required at least two teams with hay racks, one man in the field to help load, one man for each team, one man to operate and feed the corn into the cutter blower, and one man inside the silo. That's five men for a minimum operation. Cecil had a son, Bob, who was about my age. So with the three of us, Pa, Mel, and I, Cecil and Bob, made up the crew. That was some of the hardest, most tiring work I've ever done. Another tough job was harvesting ice, but that's another story. Number three was spike pitching from an oat stack into the separator, thrashing. A joke that I remember to this day goes like this. Please remember, we are clean-cut guys, almost as pure as the driven snow and Catholic through and through, who knew all the venial and mortal sins by heart. It was midday, and Bob and I unhitched our teams, watered them, and led them into the barn to rest and eat. Cecil's barn, where the horses and cows resided, was like a house with a daylight basement. And the daylight basement is where we headed on this hot, muggy fall day. Needless to say, the flies were thicker than fleas on a dog's back. And one of the big blue-tailed flies got sucked into Bob's mouth. And he wasn't about to dislodge it. So he reluctantly had to swallow it. He coughed a couple times and in a very disgusted tone said, God damn it, and today's Friday. Two sins committed in four words, using the Lord's name in vain and eating meat on Friday. Hunting, fishing, and the Anoka County Game Warden. For some reason, I've always been lying here thinking about the old days and just a little short memories that don't have a long story involved. Here's one I thought of. Lanky Peliquin and I were out hunting one day near his farm. It was winter, and there was probably a foot of snow in the fields. We were sort of looking for a pheasant to put in our shotgun sights. Bear in mind, I'm talking about the middle of winter, and the regular pheasant season is usually in the fall sometime. Well, anyhow, we didn't see any pheasants, but we did come upon a place on the edge of a field where someone had placed about a dozen ears of corn upright in the snow. Lo and behold, there were also three or four traps set to catch the pheasants. We were so disgusted in seeing this, we stole the traps and took them home. As memory recalls, that was the same day we decided to go fishing. Lanky, Don, Paul, and myself. So we fixed up some lines for fishing through the ice and proceeded to fish. We no longer had our lines in the water for a few minutes when a car approached us on the lake and lo and behold, it was the Anoka County Game Warden. I guess we hadn't reached his quota for the month because he proceeded to arrest us for fishing without a license. This was a very strange predicament we were in. As much hunting, trapping, or fishing we did at the time in our lives, this probably was the only time we had ever, ever 
seen a game warden in what we considered our part of the country. And we always had the proper license in hand during season. Well, I think I've related this story oft times before, and I may have even written it down. But while I'm thinking about it, I'll write about it again. It seems to me he took us to Joe Rivard, Justice of the Peace, for one reason or another, and the warden wasn't satisfied that the Centerville community would consider this a serious offense. So we had to follow him to Anoka for 20 miles. The warden didn't know we had been hunting pheasants that morning, and we hid our firearms under our back seat on the way, along with the four traps. We were herded before a judge, and he sentenced us to $25 apiece or 30 days. It was late afternoon, and he sent us home to gather up the money and come back on Monday. We didn't take this very seriously, though. Lanky and I had a job to do for Uncle Joe Dufresne, cutting cord wood for him in his woods. About noon, we were sitting in the car, eating our lunches, when who should show up but the damn warden. This guy was determined to make our lives miserable, so back we went to Anoka. I don't recall now if we were chauffeured there, but we must have been because we really didn't believe they would put us in jail for fishing without a license. But to jail we did go, to the Anoka jail. You have to remember at this point, we didn't have the $25 to pay the fine, and our folks didn't have it either. My God, why would Lanky and I be cutting cordwood, oak? It was such hard work for minimum pay. We weren't paid by the hour, but rather got paid for a cord, which measures out to be eight feet long by four feet and four feet wide. Well, we settled down in the jail. We were all in the same cell, and as I remember, they were steel, folk-down bunks with a mattress and a blanket and a pillow. It was hotter than hot in there, and the lights never went out. Very uncomfortable. Nothing to do but read or sleep. Wow. I don't know how prisoners can put up with being cooped up for months and years on end and retain their sense of balance. We did get good meals, and while we were in jail, Joe Lamott and Joe Rivard stopped by with some cookies and candy, but no money. Well, the money wasn't forthcoming from our families, so after a couple days, we were transferred to the Park Lake Workhouse, a large, minimum security prison, which was also a large, well-run dairy farm. There, they had a beautiful herd of Holsteins. They were milked three times a day, rather than the normal two times a day, but I'm getting ahead of my story. On arrival at the workhouse, after checking in, the first thing they do is take you in a changing room where they take all your clothes away. You have to take a shower in a community shower and they give you a complete new set of clothes. It seemed everyone got the same size, big. We were lucky enough to be the first ones showered and clothed, but we had a chance to see the newest recruits arrive. I recall two of the guys, probably Mexican, were all beat up and bloody. The rest were just bums or maybe homeless people. They seemed to be happy that they'd made it here for the rest of the winter. 
Rumor had it that some of these guys actually got themselves in trouble so they'd have a decent warm place to sleep and three, or was it two, meals a day and work that wasn't that bad. After that, we were assigned to a cell. Oh yeah, it was a minimum security prison, but we were locked up at night. I can still hear the doors close, three or four at a time, and the clanging sound with metal hits metal. Our workload consisted of cleaning the barns, which were kept very clean, putting down new straw, bedding, and of course, milking the cows. The milk was weighed from each cow and recorded. All the cows were milked with modern milking machines, except for a few that had such large udders that milking machines wouldn't fit on them because their teats were only about a foot or so off the ground. These cows had to be milked by hand, and lo and behold, the world-renowned milker name of Lanky was in our midst. Well, word got around supposedly from our entrance interview that we we're all farmers of sorts, and for some reason, Lanky drew the short straw to milk this very large cow. That wasn't so bad until we found out she didn't like to have her teats manhandled. So, she had to have both back legs tied to a heavy post. Not only that, Lanky had to practically lay down beside her to milk her. She was that close to the ground. Seeing this story unfold was worth the price of admission. I don't recall too much about the food, except that it was unexceptional. The first morning for breakfast, we had pancakes. I could have eaten more, as well as Lanky, but for some reason, we were unable to catch the waiter's eye for some service. So we went without a second helping. After breakfast, we proceeded to the barn to do the chores and came upon the biggest bull I had ever seen in his own sturdy pen. There were two guys there feeding the bull pancakes. This incarceration was a real eye-opener. In a sense, we are celebrities. When we got settled in, it was announced over the loudspeakers that there were three local boys in for fishing without a license. Some people came up to congratulate us. For what? I don't remember exactly how long we spent in jail, but my estimate is Monday through the following Monday, when Uncle Joe Peliquin finally showed up with the $25 each. No discomfort for time spent. When we returned home, we had the big getting out party at Tim's. What's your social security number? Three seven five six zero five nine seven. Three seven five six zero five nine seven. A number I will take to my grave. My army career wasn't that exciting. When you go into the service, you don't have the vaguest idea where you're going, how long it will take to get there, what and when we will eat and sleep. I suppose, in a sense, it was quite an adventure and exciting in that respect. I have often heard other guys say, I'm glad I went through it and returned home in one piece, but I would never consider doing it again. I did see many parts of the world I wouldn't have seen otherwise. All my travels in the U.S. were by troop trains, Minneapolis, St. Paul to Camp Grant, Illinois for basic training, then to Denver for more training. 
After eight weeks at Fitzsimmons General Hospital, a long ride to the East Coast to a camp where we were boarded to troop ship, the Monarch of Bermuda, a converted luxury liner from New York to Liverpool, England, our ship was the command ship for a very large convoy. You could look in every direction and there were ships as far as you could see. We docked in Liverpool and finally ended up in Warrington, England, where I was assigned to a station hospital midway between Liverpool and Manchester, where I stayed on for two years. Unfortunately, I joined a station hospital that had been in Reykjavik, Iceland, about a year before they moved to England. Well, that meant their table of organization was filled and there wouldn't be any promotions for any of us new recruits for all the time I was there. I finally made private first class by an act of Congress. Because of training at Fitzsimmons General Hospital, I was assigned as ward master, which should have warranted corporal or sergeant stripes. But as mentioned earlier, there weren't any promotions available. My first assignment was the officer's ward. I stayed there for a while, then was transferred to the contagion ward. We always dreaded the ambulance that came from Liverpool, where the troop ships unloaded, and they always had some patients for us. The hardest to handle were the meningitis patients that were unconscious. Some were very hard to contain as they were fighting and cursing and had to be restrained. I was scared out of my wits with some of the big guys who were strong as oxes. Meningitis is very contagious, and we had to wear masks and gowns and wash our hands every time we left the room. They were usually in private rooms. One day our hospital was honored with a visit from General George Patton. For reasons only known to him, he elected to visit the contagion ward. I remember we were at the door to meet him, doctor, nurse, me, and we all proceeded to go through the ward. The general approached a guy sitting up in his bed and asked what his sickness was, and the soldier answered, I have scarlet fever. The general answered, God damn it, if you'd cut your hair, you wouldn't get scarlet fever. The general was an imposing figure to see and hear. He was tall, wore jot hoppers with highly polished boots and two pearl-handled sidearms. I think I had been with the 168th Station Hospital in Warrington for about a year when they decided to exchange our white nurses for an all-black cadre of nurses, and they were there till after the war was over and the hospital was closed. Not only that, we started getting German war prisoners about the same time. They put wire around the hospital, which made it look like a war zone. Most of the patients were bedridden with bad wounds. There was a whole ward to burn patients, and when I went to visit a friend there, he showed me a patient that had a bed full of maggots. There were so many that fell off the bed, they were doing close order drill in the hall. It was a fact they used maggots to eat the dead flesh, thereby keeping the wound clean. We also had a number of amputees and other serious wounds that required a lot of care. I still remember Christmas Eve when the whole ward of men was singing Christmas carols. 
It was sad for them as well as us. There was an officer that spoke excellent English, and when he heard my name, he said he knew of a famous cello player named Dupre. Prior to the arrival of the German patients, I recalled a good-looking black man who, upon hearing my name, started talking French to me. I just stared at him as I couldn't believe what I was hearing. A black man talking French? I hadn't been around colored people so much, so this was a great surprise to me. I got to know him better through the course of his stay with us. He was an accomplished piano player and had his own show in Chicago. When our hospital closed and we all went our separate ways, I was sent to Camp Lucky Strike to be reassigned. I was sure I was on my way home, but after they read my resume, they found out I used to drive a truck back in Minnesota. So they sent me to Frankfurt, Germany. We shipped out of Bournemouth, England and landed at Le Havre, France. I was assigned to a motor pool about a mile from the IG Farben building, which was headquarters for the U.S. sector. We furnished drivers for the officers from headquarters to anywhere in Europe. I never did get to be a driver when they learned I also used to tend bar for Tim's in Centerville. So together with another staff sergeant, we started a company bar. We had our own Jeep and the use of a truck to haul all the kitchen food supplies which was the only other job we had besides running the bar and keeping it stocked. We had three Polish displaced persons that did all the work at the bar. Displaced persons, or DPs, were non-Jewish people the Germans captured and brought to Germany for a free workforce. Two of them were only 17 years old and had been with the Germans for three years already. We had access to all the Heineken keg beer we could use, and the brewery was in a fortified basement, and though the building was demolished, the brewery kept operating full blast. We had to buy our wine from the locals, which was an experience. The army allotted each man one and one-fourth bottles of gin and a bourbon per month and we were able to buy Coke and other soft drinks from the Coca-Cola company, which was firmly established there. We also received three pop coolers for them. When we started the bar, we didn't have any glasses, so we had to steal a trailer of coal and take it to Koblenz, which was about 75 miles away, located in the French sector. We had to bring the coal to the glass factory so they could manufacture more glasses. We returned with a trailer load of glasses, but still had to pay for them. Since we had a Jeep and two of us running the bar, we had every other weekend off. I don't know what my partner did on those weekends, but I used to go hunting in the mountains with some of the guys. We'd made friends with a German couple that had a big house near our hunting area. They would get some other men to make some drives through the woods and we'd always get a couple deer, which we gave to the drivers. One night we decided to go boar hunting with a few of the guys. Luckily, we didn't find any. Hunting at night is probably not the smartest thing to do, especially when the boars probably weigh about three to four hundred pounds with long tusks. 
The time I spent in Germany went by all too fast as we had a house to live in, sleeping on inner spring mattresses and had a mess hall that was second to none. The cook and the baker were American Germans that got caught in Germany while visiting there. We always had the best food as we were drawing rations for about 250 men, but at any given time, 50 to 75 men were out camp driving somewhere. So we always had more than enough to eat. When we went hunting, we got the best food available. Fresh eggs, bread, big cans of bacon, whenever we needed. The fact that I was involved with the bar didn't hurt. The cooks loved the good whiskey. The time came when I had enough points to come home. At the time, I was approached to stay with the motor pool as a dispatcher, as a civilian employee. It was a good deal as we got officer's pay and got an allotment of army uniforms. It was a very tempting offer, but having been overseas for two and a half years, I elected to go home. I often wondered how my life would have been if I stayed. We finally shipped out of Le Havre after going through the various shakedown camps waiting for orders. Going on a Liberty ship, the SS Elgin, and had a nice trip home. This time I even slept in a bed. Arrived in New York early in the morning and it was good to see the Statue of Liberty again. Things happened pretty fast once we hit the States. A camp in New York, then a train to Camp McCoy in Wisconsin, where we were all set free. I took a bus to St. Paul, and that was the end of almost three years in the service. Read all about it in the Noka County Library Minute. Hello, I'm Diana Nurberg, a librarian for Anoka County Library, and I'm here with your Library Minute. This one's dedicated to the farm life. Let's get started. First, we have Our Little Farm, Adventures in Sustainable Living by Peter Wollleben. A German forester, the author of this book recounts the ups and downs of creating a sustainable homestead with his family after taking a job as forester for a community and moving into the Forest Service farm, which hadn't operated as a proper farm in quite some time. They started with a small vegetable garden, but as global food crises continued to crop up, they expanded their operations to include growing fruit trees, raising animals, and keeping bees. Wollaben offers their story as inspiration for the budding hobby farmer. Next, we have Growing Tomorrow, a farm-to-table journey in photos and recipes, behind the scenes with 18 extraordinary sustainable farmers who are changing the way we eat, by Forrest Pritchard. In addition to all of the content promised in the title of the book, there are also call-out boxes with interesting facts and anecdotes. Finally, there's Whole Farm Management, From Startup to Sustainability by Gary Owen Stevenson. This is a comprehensive guide to all the business aspects of starting a farm from the Small Farms Program at Oregon State University. The book covers planning, marketing, risk management, and more. You can find these resources and so much more at your local Anoka County Library. Until next time, happy learning. Get those library cards and reserve your copy today. Direct links to these books and more can be found in the episode show notes at anokacountyhistory.org. I want to say another thank you to Brian for coming in and lending us his voice to bring Burton's words to life again. It was hard trying to figure out what stories in his book I wanted to record and share for this episode. And Brian was a trooper. 
coming in on a Saturday and hanging out with me. The final story Burton included in his book, I was so tempted, so tempted to put it in the episode, but I, I couldn't. It cracked me up. It's the saga of when he went to a big dog store in the late 90s to purchase shorts. There was great family debate after the purchase of these particular shorts, and uh, whether he had indeed purchased outside shorts as he had wanted, or whether they were underwear. After the debate, he ended up returning them. There are more hidden memoirs and family histories on the shelves here at the museum, and we need to dive into reading and sharing more of them. The gift that the authors gave to the families and us by setting down these thoughts and stories is immeasurable. We can look up dates, we can look up family relationships pretty easily, but what the jail looked and felt like when you were picked up for poaching fish or how General Patton blamed long hair for scarlet fever can only be found in one place. You're important, your story is important, and it is part of a big tapestry of local history. So get used to it. Tell your story. Okay, off. I'm back to work. Uh, see you all next time. Bye, all If you have a question, want to visit our show notes page for each episode, or would like to share your own story, go to anokacountyhistory.org. Help History 21, the podcast, reach more ears by subscribing and reviewing on your podcast provider. We're all over social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for all those who scroll by. And for our Vault members, you can find special access to podcast extras as well as the latest digital resources at History 21 The Vault, located on our website. Remember, the present is the past of the future.